Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet is a modern campaign agency dedicated to using data-driven grassroots organising to build winning campaigns and make the world a better place. Whether you're in business, issue-based campaigns, or an organisation driving change in your community, Dunstreet helps develop strategies to overcome challenges by connecting people that share the same values and organises them to achieve these common goals from the ground up. To find out how you can partner with Dunstreet, just hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Hello, welcome to Socially Democratic episode number 22, I think, which is your favourite weekly centre-left political and cultural podcast that will dive into the progressive issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. We're a little bit closer to home today uh, after being in the United States for the past couple of weeks, but we are in the top end. We're in the Northern Territory and we had on today's podcast the uh, Chief Minister for the Northern Territory Labor Government, Michael Gunner. Uh, in another life, I was up in Territory in 2016 working on their election campaign. It was a historic landslide for Labor back in 2016, and it's uh, the first time I've actually spoken to Michael since that fantastic campaign, and it was great to catch up with him to find out how things are going in the Northern Territory and all the good work that he and his government are doing for the people of the Territory. So I hope you enjoy uh, today's episode. Don't forget, you can subscribe to uh, the Socially Democratic podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite podcast app. And if you are on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. And don't forget to follow us on all our social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Let's get to today's episode. Okay, we are taping this one on a Monday in tropical Northern Territory. Uh, last week I was in the snow in New York and now I'm in the complete opposite when it comes to weather. Um, and I'm joined uh, by the Chief Minister for the Northern Territory, Michael Patrick Francis Gunner. Welcome to Socially Democratic. <laughs> and welcome to Darwin, the capital of Northern Australia. And as of Sunday... It's the world's capital for Luxor. Yeah, I uh, I got in yesterday and I uh, I missed out on this this this, this Luxor competition that was going on yesterday and there was like a golden bowl that was going to be awarded. What 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 is going on there? Um, Why is Darwin associated so strongly with Luxor? I'm a big believer in doubling down on success, and it's probably one way of describing our economic plan. Uh, one of the things that we are really good at in Darwin, one of the things that we love is Luxor. We've got sort of an obsession with it. And so this year we announced the International Luxor Festival with the Golden Bowl for the world's best Luxor. So those classic things. We first time around, we didn't invite anybody else. We, you know, we made the best Luxor, obviously. So the winner uh, on Sunday, which was Chock's Place, is the world's best Luxor. As of next year, we'll invite others to come down and compete. Uh, but it was a, a stunning success. Uh, there are amazing things you can do with Luxor. We had Luxor and Inspired by Luxor category. So across the last month, we've enjoyed Luxor ice cream, Luxor chocolate, Luxor sausages, Luxor panna cotta. Uh, it's quite uh, an incredible variety. So here in Darwin, we've doubled down on Luxor. Um, where um, the uh, was it the Middle Markets is sort of famous for getting your Luxor down there as well. Is that where it all sort of began, the, this whole Luxor thing? 
I'd argue it's the Pratt markets, uh, on a Saturday morning hangover cure. Yeah. So we're a big believer in Luxa for breakfast. And uh, Mary's probably the most famous Luxa person in the territory. And the queue at Mary's at the Pratt markets is always out of control. I call it the gateway Luxa. If you've never had one before, she was the one that gets you to be the one that gets you hooked. Um, and big plug there for your uh, local lecturer as well. So <laughs> That's right. Consumer politician, Michael. <laughs> um, the last time I saw you uh, was just over like, three years ago. Um, it was a day after the Northern Territory elections in 2016. Um, I think you popped into the railway uh, or the railway workers. The rails? Yeah. I'm patron for the rails. Uh, club for uh, just a, a very quick libation to celebrate um, what was a triumphant election victory, a landslide election victory uh, for Territory Labor. Um, if you think back to that day or that evening um, and your expectations that you then had for the role and then fast forward to today, um, have those, what, what is, have those expectations been met? Is there anything that surprised you about the actual role of being Chief Minister for the Territory? Um, I've always described the Chief's job as more. I think everyone coming into it, whether it's Chief Minister or Premier or, or role like that, you kind of know in some ways what you're getting into, this public scrutiny, the the demands, the, the challenges, um, but it's more. It's just more. And you've just got to work out a way of uh, managing that. But at the heart of it is people. And you can't get into this job, I think, unless you care for and want to do more. Uh, for people, and so for me, it's Territorians, and that's been the greatest joy out of the job is to be able to connect at a, in an even bigger way with more Territorians and just do things that you know are genuinely going to change their lives for the better. That's why you get up in the morning, and it's what we've been able to do as a government. Uh, let's. Uh, I want to ask you a bit more about that in a moment, but let's go backwards. Um, you're a born and bred Territorian. Which uh, is that a rarity for a chief minister? If you go back in recent history, I'm the eleventh chief minister. Yep, I'm the first to be born in the territory. There you go. That's how rare it is. Yeah. I thought that at the time when I was doing my research, I was like, I don't think that the last couple at least were uh, born and raised in the territory. Um, and I'm really keen for the people who don't know much about your background. Tell us a bit about um, your your you know where you grew up and sort of influences that you had. So my, my great-granddad arrived in Tennant Creek in the early 30s, so I'm a fourth-generation Territorian. I'm not sure what great-granddad uh, was running away from, but he's running away from something because Tennant Creek in the 30s was not even a dirt road. There was a couple hundred people. The, the bitumen came in the early 40s as part of the World War II effort, so it's a middle of nowhere, mm. tiny kind of place. I was personally born in Alice Springs, just down the road from Tennant Creek, Five hundred Ks. Yeah, I was gonna say. Ks, I was gonna sorry. say. Yeah, let's give some context. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, five hundred Ks uh, south of yeah. uh, Tenet is a place called Alice. It does feel down the road, so that was that wasn't necessarily meant to be. A, yeah. It's kind of how territory is a big place, and we've yeah. kind of got used to getting around it. Um, so, born in Alice. I moved around a lot as a kid, so my parents are always chasing work, and we, they tried their hands at many things, either you know, working for people or their own small businesses. I went to about nine different schools. I've actually got to the point now of age where I can't quite remember the exact order anymore of what school I went to. It does plague me a bit, but I went to school in Alice Springs, Tennant Creek, Adelaide, Adelaide Hills, Cairns, Alice Springs, Tennant Creek, Darwin. I just jumped around mm. a lot. Um, during you, that – sorry? You got a master education at some point amongst those – uh, schools that you went to is that right? I remember um, Morris Bell. Oh, you so at St John's College, yep. uh, they're obviously a, a Catholic school, as well as um, some Catholic schools in Alice, and also went to public schools in, in Tennant Creek and other places. So it did a mixture of You've done them all public and Catholic. And this probably goes to my how do I how do I become a politician? I get asked that a lot. Why 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 politics? We were in Tennant Creek, 
and we were doing it really hard as a family, which wasn't a new thing. But in this instance, we didn't have a house. So we were basically couch surfing with aunts and yeah. uncles. And when you're a young kid, you don't quite realise what's going on. You, you're staying at your, your cousin's place. You're having fun. Like, I'm running around the yard. It's yeah. so the reality later kicks you that we didn't have a house. Mm. We were in the public housing wait list and we, we were there for, for months. And we finally got a house in, in Tennant Creek. And, and that was transformative, having our own place. And about the same time, we were struggling to get through Christmas and there was a knock on the door and the local church group dropped us off a, off a hamper and that got us through Christmas and my Christmas presents that year were the term one stationery brought forward. So I'm opening up, you know, here's a, some pens and a, a notebook for, for Christmas. And so we, we've, we've done it tough, but the lesson now that was I am where I am. I've had the opportunities I've had in life because someone was there for me. There was a safety net, you know, the government provided a house, the local church group had fundraised and looked after us. So for me in this job, it's about how do I give back and how do you make sure no one ever gets left behind and everyone gets that same equality of opportunity. That That's what drives me um, in this job is how do I keep making sure that any kid like me gets the same chance in life that I had and I'm now sitting here as Chief Minister, boy from public housing. Uh, it's actually refreshing. Uh, it was a f- refreshing aspect to your campaign. Obviously, I spent a bit of time up here in the lead up to that election campaign um, to see the willingness uh, by yourself to share your personal story as a politician um, and to be able to allow voters to understand where you've come from and what your what you value in life and how those values were shaped and how that will um, that will how that will play a role in you being a leader of a, of a community. Um, a lot of politicians aren't ever comfortable doing that, um, but you were, and that's a, I find that as to be a rare exception. Why were you so comfortable in sharing your own personal story? I reckon it's something about being a Territorian. So this is obviously not exclusive to other places. I'm sure you can find it elsewhere, but we're a small place, 250,000 people, one point. Four square million kilometres. I grew up in Tennant. I grew up in Alice. I'm used to everyone knowing your story in a sense. Mm. You know, you don't say anything that you ever want someone else to not hear, if that makes sense. Everyone's yeah. going to hear what you say, so yeah. be, be free to share. And as a local member of parliament in a seat with 4,000 people, you get to build personal connections and relationships, and I think it's really important in this job. Um, I reckon we've got one degree of separation in the Northern Territory. They did, they did research in New Zealand, I think, where it was, uh, they proved it was only two degree separation max of mm. everybody to Jacinda Ardern. I reckon there's a chance in the Territory it's one degree <laughs> of separation. So people know your story yeah. uh, or you want people to know your story, like build a genuine connection. Um, people will – you want people to know who you are and why you're in the job. And I think as a politician you should not be afraid of having that conversation – and explain why you're doing what you're doing. I think the why is almost the most important thing of anything. And if you ever have an argument with somebody and you get back into the why, you often work out where you've where you've got differences and how you actually work through that. Whereas if you're doing it at the sort of the pointy end, there's no room for consensus there. The room, the opportunity for consensus is in the why. Mm. This is why I'm doing it. Why do you think I should do it differently? What's, what's your why? And when you go, oh, I get where you're coming from. And then you can have a, a proper conversation that leads to an outcome. So how do I, as a politician, connect with somebody and get a result where as many people as possible get that win? What led you to uh, go down the path of entering into politics? Is there sort of any plot points where you think, oh, geez, if I hadn't done that, I don't think I'd be here today? <laughs> or um, sort of sliding doors moment almost. It, it is. Um, for me, I was working at Big W and I went way through university mm-hmm. and I'd gone to the union movement through that. We were um, 
so I shouldn't say that like, BW's a good company. I had a great time at BW. I had a, I had a store manager at the time, though, that wasn't necessarily um, going by the rules that had been negotiated by the union. So I'd been asked, this is before we had the union come through, to be the stock runner. They'll go in and say, look, I think we've deserved a break now. And they go, I think you need to do a couple more hours more work. <laughs> the union rocked up and said, no, you're entitled to a 15-minute break every couple of hours. Um, you know, don't climb that pallet stack and throw things off the top of it and catch it. Yeah, we were engaged in risky behaviour in a way. So I got recruited by the union and I started sort of organising people on the shop floor and then they say, you know, you're into the layer party and you're away. Mm. Um, So for me, it was that nexus of being at university, working my way through university, being on the shop floor, seeing what happens, what can go wrong if you don't have strong representation or if people don't get together and campaign for something and seeing the result when you do. And then I was in. And here you are today. Here I am today, shop floor to chief minister. Indeed. Um, The territory is an incredibly unique place. Uh, Each electorate, you know, has between what sort of three to 5,000 electors, um, which makes it really classic kind of retail politics. It's almost like you feel like you could invite everyone over for dinner on a Thursday night and just ask for a commitment for their vote on the Saturday election. You know, that's how sort of small it is. (laughs) Um, But just to give us uh, listeners outside of the territory who have never experienced a campaign before, and half the reason why I came up in 2016 was because I had friends, both friends of yours and mine, who had worked on other campaigns and said, Stephen, you need to at least do one territory campaign in your life uh, because it is so unique. Uh, describe the uniqueness of being uh, someone who holds public office in the Northern Territory. Um, it, people can sometimes make the mistake of assuming because it's three to 5,000, therefore it's easier. Mm. I actually think it makes it harder. There's an intensity to having that relationship, maintaining that relationship. You know, offside one large family, that's 1% of the vote. You know, it's, yeah. you've got to really make sure that you're talking to everybody, listening to everybody, working with everybody all the way through. Um, so my electorate, to give an example, would be, you know, Pratt, Fanny Bay, the gardens. There's a couple of suburbs. Um, you could probably walk it all in a day if you really wanted to. Not every street, but you could walk, certainly walk the boundary of it in a, in a day. Preferably not today because it's freaking hot out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so what that means is you – Oh, I love this. You genuinely go down streets. You know half the people in the street. You're having a great conversation. You know what they're after. You know what they want. And you go in there and you have a meaningful outcome, which I think is something – I don't talk for so, – uh, maybe I shouldn't talk for politicians in larger seats, but I genuinely get results. And that's rewarding. Mm. You're, you're talking to people and you know that, what impact you've had on their lives, on their kids. You've got that, that outcome at the school. You've had that policy win. You know, you've, you've helped get – the seawall built at the sailing club to make sure it doesn't wash away or something. You've, you've seen a, an actual outcome. Well, you mentioned the rails earlier. That burnt down 10 years back. I helped save the railway club and get it rebuilt with the membership. Mm. Um, you get those tangible outcomes. Far, you know, well, I shouldn't say fast forward. Step sideways slightly and you maybe talking to a, a Selena Yubo who's in the seat of Arnhem, completely different dimensions. Mm. It would take her days to get around her electorate, thousands of kilometres. She's got an island with Grid Island in her electorate. That's probably half the population. Um, can get washed out during the wet season, as in I the roads. You can't access it by road. You've got to fly into communities to meet with them. Uh, completely different kind of, of politics in some respects. Um, Alice Springs, Tennant Creek, like we are blessed with a diversity of people. We are actually the most diverse place of the country. So third of the population Indigenous, mm-hmm. over a third born overseas, which is the highest in the country. We are the most multicultural diverse part and of lot, Australia. And, and a lot of people don't know that. I think it's important to recognise that. Yeah, so my electorate is, um, you know, probably close to 10% Italian, 10% Greek, 10% 
Chinese, you know, 23% Indigenous. Like, it, it, it's a great diversity to my electorate. All mixed up. We don't have, like, an Italian suburb or a Greek suburb. Everyone sort of is mixed up. Our classrooms are United Nations. I think you've got over 100 countries at Darwin High, mm-hmm. you know, represented there. A huge melting pot. If you go... To, a melting pot, sorry. If you go to our markets, you see that in the food that's reflected mm. there. It's it's fantastic and fabulous about uh, where we live. Um, and I, I do love, as a member of parliament, as a chief minister, getting onto a dirt road or flying into a, a small community and sitting down and talking to people there and connecting with them about what their issues are, which are completely different to people mm. living in my electorate and Prap off any bay. Following your social media uh, platforms, it is quite evident that you are travelling a lot uh, around this huge electorate uh, of, of this territory of yours. How do you manage that? And you know, yeah, the uh, the travel does get to you. I, I reckon I spent a third of my year outside down in a remote part of the NT, and you're reliant on on small planes basically. So. Um, we've, we've made some changes lately. I was going around a lot of engines of, you know, a lot of planes with just one engine and that. We probably thought that might not be the safest way to, <laughs> to get around a four seaters. Um, but we, we, yeah, unfortunately, the job I prefer to drive in because one of the big questions when you get to a community is how are the roads. Mm. So if you can drive into a community, you drive into a community. I often fly in. One of the first things you do is drop in and see the local traditional owners and, and get their welcome to country. So, you, you know, yeah, you, you do the right thing uh, culturally. Uh, and then you have a completely different experience to what you would have in an urban centre. These are, these are remote communities, sometimes hundreds of kilometres from the next community, highly dependent upon the local services there, and we've got to do our best to make sure we're delivering good services into that region. comes at a diff- completely different cost to what you might do with a health clinic mm. in, you know, Prap or Geelong versus a health clinic in New and Demu or Large Amanu. Like, mm. um, massive, massive um, challenges, um, but there's kids living there, and you want them to all grow up and have the same opportunities in life as any other kid. Mm. When you became uh, Chief Minister, uh, describe the state that the Territory was in that you inherited from your CLP. Very difficult circumstances. So when we lost office in 2012, it was on a bit of a high. We'd just delivered the IMPEX project. For people who don't know, is the biggest spend Japan's ever done outside Japan. This is a, a massive infrastructure project. At one stage, it was over 10% of our local workforce was working on it, like it was a huge project. Uh, going into the 2016 election, the CLP had made a number of decisions to sell public assets. So they, they sold a local insurance company. They'd uh, sold the port. They um, sold the buses, they sold the printing office, um, and then they spent it all. And so there was no money left in the coffers to try and deal with the fallout, the fact that Impex is winding down. So that's a massive construction project. I think anyone can appreciate you lose 10% of your local workforce. Mm. You need to have some plan in place to build a bridge. So we had, were forced into doing some stimulus projects that were essential to try and keep people in jobs and employment. And I'm a big believer that, and this is a Labor Party value, You've got to make sure that people have money coming in. They can pay for their bills. That's that's fundamental. And until you've got that, you can't discuss other policies. You've, you've got to make sure you're delivering people jobs and employment so they've got that security for them and their kids. Once you've delivered that, then you can get into other, other issues. And you want to get into other issues because there are a lot of other big issues out there. But if you don't know where the next dollar's coming from and you can't pay the bills, you don't have time in your mm. life to debate other issues. And every election is different. It could be a, a climate change election or something else. But if you haven't got that, that person in a job, then they haven't got time in their lives to contemplate those big things that we all need to work on. Um, so for me, it's about getting 
and keeping people in work, and we've been doing that since 2016. It's been very tough. On top of that, we had um, massive GST cuts from the Australian government that's kind of really took our knees out when it came came to the local budget, but we still had to find a way to, to get money into the construction sector, get money into hospitality and retail. It's been a bit of a battle mm-hmm. to make sure we're doing everything we can to keep people employed. What are some of the wins in that sort of economic space that you've had over the last three years? I, I reckon some of the, the big stuff in, is um, space. It's solar. Mm-hmm. Um, we have joined the space race. Next year, we'll be launching rockets. NASA has signed up. We're going to be the first commercial base NASA has ever used outside of America. It'll be happening here in the Northern Territory, a little place called Uricala. That's where the Gama Festival is. So you've got... Um, a local indigenous mine out there that started up this term. You've got, um, obviously, Gama itself. You're now going to have the Arnhem Space Base. It's an incredible story, and Territory Kids are exceptionally excited that we're going to be joining the space race. It blows my mind. We've secured now the NT to be the home for the world's largest solar farm, world's largest battery, and a power cable all the way to Singapore, which is huge news. So Mike Cannon-Brooks has gone board with that. Um, Twiggy Forest now gone on board with that. So that's that's reality. 22 million solar panels in the middle of the Territory Desert. That's huge. There's six people employed right now on Tenant Creek as part of that project. It'll eventually be 300 in Tenant Creek. That, that's a massive project. So they're big wins um, that we're working on. And I, I think if you get it right around renewables, that's how you get it right around hydrogen. So that that's the, the big ticket around solar and getting that energy there. And it's how you want to to run your manufacturing sector. So I think I'm a big believer that the home for manufacturing in the future in Australia is the north. We'll be close to energy. We're close to market. So people might not realise this. It's easier for me to get to Shenzhen, Singapore, Bali, Dili, than it is Canberra Mm. from Darwin. And I think sometimes that gets forgotten down south that you've got these hundreds of millions of people to our north that are literally within four hours flying distance from here, whereas Canberra is um, often or only can, – we can only get to Canberra via another capital city. So mm. it takes me about seven or eight hours to get to Canberra versus a direct flight to Shenzhen. I'll be in mainland China quicker than I'll be in the capital of our country. And huge economic markets in those regions. Oh, hundreds of millions of people and, the, and, and money. Like they, 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 They're hungry for our resources. They're hungry for our food. There's a market just sitting there wanting to be tapped. Has it historically been the case that Northern Territory governments have not looked to that market to help develop economic prosperity for the people of the Territory? Or is this something that you've started to do yourself? Or I think we've had a pretty good history before. I, I, I can't knock at previous governments. I think we've got a very good connection of... Um, very good history of building connections with Asia. I think what I find is talking to the Australian government, they don't often realise that. Mm. In fact, I've had more success in many ways talking with the Japanese government, the Chinese government, or the American government, who immediately look at where Darwin is and just say that's a natural base to mm. work into the region from. It just makes sense, and you fast forward a bit. We talk to the Australian government. Oh, I get it. There's more votes in Sydney and Melbourne than there are in Darwin, but we're the natural place to work to the region from, and there are some reasons why you have to do it from Darwin or close than from a Sydney or Melbourne, which is further away. Um, Data centres are an example. You want to be close to where the data is stored. You get lag or latency issues. Mm. So Darwin's a natural spot for data centres. In terms of the services industry, you want to be close to market. So we're building a ship lift here in the marine services industry. That will function out of Darwin. It won't function out of Perth because if you're going to take it all the way down the, the you know around the coast to Perth, that's 10, 15 days out of your, 
of your schedule, Darwin's right here. So how do you build these services in the local region and work the local region from Darwin? So it's a natural port to do business. And given the, the population, uh, yeah, as you said before, is what, 280,000 or something? 250, yeah. Yeah, so when you create 300 or 1,000 jobs, that's huge. Oh, that's massive for us, yeah, yeah. And, and we underestimate that down south, I think. Yeah, and I, I, we get into these fights sometimes. I feel like I say the Australian government sometimes, we talk about chump change. Like, I want $300 million for a ship lift. Mm. That will have a huge impact on the territory. It'll be good for the, the nation. They'll create 400 ongoing jobs and set down up to be a supply and services centre to the region. That's good. That's great. That's nation building. Mm. They're saying, no, we'll lend you the money and make you pay it back, which just seems madness to me. But by the same token, they'll give $260 million to the Victorian government to underground one, you know, intercrossing, mm. railway, railway yeah. crossing. Um, why? Votes. That's yeah. all I can see what it comes down to. Um, that must be a challenge when you do go to COAG um, and negotiate with the federal government because the federal government, you know, you're not a state. So right. the, the funding arrangement is fundamentally different. Yeah. Um, where do you try and find leverage? So you, you've got to um, pick your battles in a sense because the Australian government just is a lot bigger than we are. Um, so we picked one with remote housing and one where the Australian government holds the leases. They were going to shortchange us on the remote housing deal. So we've put $1.1 billion in over 10 years to build more houses remote. Mm-hmm. And I think we can all understand why. You've got people living in 25, 25 people living in a house or it's below a standard that you and I would live in. That deserves to be fixed. You can't tackle employment or a school attendance unless you get the housing sorted. Um, so we said to them, if you don't fund it properly, we'll just give your leases back and you'll spend the money directly. You'll have to spend the money. Your leases, mm. you'll go in and you do okay. the work. And so... They didn't want to do that. They wanted to give us the money and have us do the work. So I said, well, that's fine. Then you then you abide by our policy settings and you do local decision-making. You let people in that local community decide what their house is mm-hmm. going to look like and how many bedrooms it's going to have. Um, you let them have the local work. You know, these are, these are the settings that we've got in place, our policy settings around local decision-making. So if you, we'll do that. And so we made the Australian government work to our policy settings and we got that money in the end because we had leverage. Um, too often we don't have leverage, so you've got to pick your fights. Yeah. How do you get on with the current Prime Minister? Um, I, I found that he likes to have a punch-up through the media, if that makes sense, a bit of white-line fever, but when you're in a, in a room, he, he's open to a practical conversation and transactional. So under the cr- current Prime Minister, we signed off on the Darwin City deal, we signed off the Barclay Regional deal, we signed off on essentially a deal around Kakadu National Park. Um, we've just done a little bit of a stimulus spend. So we can you can get a deal done with him, um, but then he also likes, in front of a camera, he wears a Liberal tie, I wear a Labor tie, he, he wants to get into a bit of mm. political rhetoric. Mm. I kind of understand that, I don't mind that. You know, in some respects with politicians, there's cameras, you, you, play, you play to the media. Uh, as long as you can in a room, have a conversation, say this is a genuine issue, how do I work through it? And you know the other person's going to listen a little bit and, and, and actually do some deal making. Okay. Have you developed a sense of camaraderie or collective with your uh, fellow uh, Labor premiers from WA, Queensland and Victoria? So um, I go on really well with Mark McGowan and Anastasia. We've obviously chair borders and we work together on issues and there's some issues that genuinely cross borders. Uh, Jay, before he lost office, was a, a huge support. He, he rang me often and said, you know, how can I help? Mm. What experience can I lend? Um, Dan's been very helpful at, at the COAG table. We obviously don't share share a boundary, but when going to the COAG room, he's got a lot of experience um, and I've had some great conversations with him. Andrew Barr in ACT, very similar, okay. good conversations. I've tried to work really hard on SA, even though it's changed government. And this, I think this is important. We've got a strategic partnership with South Australia. We had the first ever joint cabinet meeting 
between SA and NT, that's under under Jay. Um, but there was a deal done between Adam Giles, the former CLP Chief Minister, and Jay as Premier about us working closely together. Um, that continued under Jay and I. It's now continued under Stephen and I, the new Premier. And so I'm hoping that will then survive again, whether it's myself or Stephen, whoever changes office next, that we maintain that relationship and keep working together to get results because yeah. too often we have this competitive federalism and not collaborative federalism. So how do we how do we stop some of these false fights between states and territories? Talk us through that. It's interesting because, I mean, I lived in Adelaide for a period of time and I did always get a sense that, that there, was a, there was a political, economic and cultural connection between South Australia and the Northern Territory. Um, what are you trying to do by having this sort of joint cabinet arrangement? So, so we... Um, had some good conversations and some things we're doing on is uh, how do we jointly market the Stuart Highway, for example, the north-south connection between Adelaide and Darwin. We've got what um, Jay described as counter-cyclical tourist season, so the right time to visit Australia, or, the, or sorry, the peak time to visit SA is different to the peak time to visit NT, so not really in competition there. So how do we how do we share? You know, we've got crocodiles and they've got red wine. We don't have to compete. <laughs> so how do we work together? So that's just one example. Um, other things were... You know, are we looking at doing the same kind of work on a policy piece and how do you, rather than duplicating the effort, share some policy work or one, one of us does a policy work and shares it with the other or how do we get together and do the, the mutual work on it? So lessons learnt or even more importantly than lessons learnt, if you're going to be doing a whole brand new policy, how do we work together to make sure that we're not each doing the same thing, mm. which I think was important. Um, so there, there's, there's, been, there's been some good outcomes out of that. You touched on a little bit before about some of the work that you are doing in in the bush, in the regions. Uh, Just give uh, our listeners a bit of a sense of the challenges that communities do face out there and what your government's been doing to try and help overcome those challenges. I reckon a lot of people listening might be aware or remember the intervention, as it was called, when the Australian government came in. They said they were sending the tanks in and they they came in over the top from um, Canberra and they made a whole series of decisions and investment decisions and, and law which about was hugely controversial. And that had an impact of disempowering a lot of people on the ground. So there's a lot of people out in community now who just don't feel they've got control over their lives. And if you look at what a lot of the problems we've got in the Territory around incarceration rates or antisocial behaviour or chronic illness, a lot of it um, can be tied back to people just having some control over their lives and making some big life decisions. So how do we return that control to them? How do we make sure we get the investment right into our kids? And for me, it comes down to local decision-making. So... I can make decisions now and people can make decisions in Canberra. But the closer you are, the more likely you are to get the decision right. Or if you get the decision wrong, and everyone makes mistakes, mm. you're less likely to get it big wrong. If that, if that, that, that's, that, that's, that, that, that makes, makes sense as a sentence. Yeah. yeah. Um, so local decision making is about sitting down with the community and say, what's important to you? What do you want control of? And how do we give you that control? Is it transferring the health clinic over to their control? Is it transferring the school over to their control? Is it having... A lot of people said this, they want more control over their um, sport and rec that happens in their community. The, the biggest example of this is Andiliakwa, so Groot Island. There's a land council there. We've done a massive plan with them. They're going to take over, over a period of time, they're going to take control of the three government schools that are out there. They're going to build a fourth school that is away from the three big communities. So it's like a separate bo- day. Uh, how do I explain this? It's a boarding school on country. So you, you go there Monday to Friday and you return home over the weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to um, have a... a Law and Order Justice Program for males 17 to 25, so you can be sentenced out to Gridon, Long Country. Um, that's the, the target group for them. That, that's who's essentially going off the rails, and they're saying, all right, give, send them to us, and we'll work with them. So we're putting that in place. 
Um, they want to take over their housing stock out there. So essentially have a community housing scheme. We transfer our stock over them and they, they, they run the housing stock. Uh, so we put a big plan in place where it goes both ways and we'll have contracts around this. So we essentially say we'll give you the money, you manage the program, there's a national curriculum, it's got flexibility, you, you manage that. You, you do bilingual, you do the lot. Mm. We trust you with that, but you're obviously responsible for getting the, the kids to school and having an attendance program and, and so on. Um, great, you've got the housing program, but we want to see local workers building those houses. So if mm. you're in charge of it, we want locals doing the job. Yep. And you know, if you start flying people in from Sydney, you're breaching the contract and, and, and we can go both ways. And they say, brilliant, we're, we're completely comfortable with that having rights and responsibilities that, that go both ways. And, of course, they're going to employ locals on their housing program. Mm. That's what they're going to do. Um, so, for me, this, is, this helps transform the communities. It gives them control. It helps create local economies. And to put yourself into their shoes, uh, what is probably a good example of this because there's a COAG trial out there, often year to year they'll get completely different policy settings, impose them from – outside about how different things might work, might, how the community development program might work or how the school program works or how the health program works or the opening hours of the health clinic or the opening hours of the after-hours school program or when the dentist is going to come to town. Like, mm. there's no sense of order out there. That, Why is that? Why do we keep on changing these policy settings? Well, it, it's one of those you know, one-size-fits-all kind of approach. You know, so you're sitting in, somewhere in, in Canberra or Darwin and you say, all right, we're now going to run our dentist program this way and you're living in a remote community there's, a 500 of you, or there's a 1,000 of you, or there's 1,500 of you, and it just happens to you. Mm. You don't get involved. You don't get to give some feedback and say, well, actually, doesn't work for us if dentist comes that day because we're going to be doing um, you know, ceremony over there or mm. whatever it might be. Um, it just doesn't work. Where, where's the, been the local contact or feedback or how does that work? So how do we give them back control and get very sensible, practical outcomes out of that? And we're, we're doing it in the Territory and we're seeing some good results. Right. Last couple of questions. Uh, interested to get your thoughts. The Labor Party uh, released their national review into the 2019 election campaign. And everyone's got opinions. <laughs> uh, and everyone's got hot takes on why we were unsuccessful. Yeah. Um, and a good friend of yours and I, um, I mentioned I was interviewing you today, and he said, actually, here's a question I should ask Gunnar. Um, the... You know, the big debate at the moment is how do we run a campaign that appeals to the the urbanites of progressive Victoria and in particular Melbourne, whilst at the same time trying to win the hearts and minds of people in regional Queensland? Um, he made the point that the Northern Territory in itself is almost like a microcosm of all the diversity that Australia has, because you have, you know, the you know the people in your own electorate. I was just there this morning. Um, quite a di- diverse, very kind of hipstery kind of vibe going on there. In, <laughs> That's in, correct. Yeah, yes. in that part in Fanny Bay as well. Um, but then you know you've got the regions. Uh, yeah. You've got you've got remote yeah. communities. Um, you've got uh, working class people. You you've got the whole thing here in the Northern Territory. And at the last Northern Territory election, you only lost two seats. Well, sorry, the Tories won two seats, yes. and you won how many? What's we won eighteen. Eighteen, right? Yeah. So clearly, you're doing something right here in terms of your messaging. What's your insights into that? Well, at the federal election, we also had the highest two PP vote in the country here in the territory. So I think the highest primary vote went to the ACT, but the highest two PP was here in the NT. And I think you can draw a neat comparison between the NT's federal result and Queensland's federal result. So this is where um, I don't want to give. 
I think Bill's had a bit of a, a bad rap during this at different times, or people can give their takes. Here in the Territory, Bill did it right, did the right thing by us. He, he got on board with our local Territory policies. He talked about jobs, and we were able to explain what we were doing here in response to things like climate change. We didn't talk about climate change here. We talked about what we're doing in renewables, mm-hmm. and we got very specific about what the outcome was going to be and why we were doing it. And we got a great result. We talked about why we were doing the ship lift. We talked about why we were doing remote housing. And we were able to deliver um, across both the remote areas of the Northern Territory and the CBD here in Darwin, my patch. We got one of our best results ever at a federal election. Um, but we were able to clearly explain how the policies were going to be delivering jobs. So we've got a, had, and had, still have a bit of a tough economy here. People wanted to know how the, we were going to help them keep paying the bills and I can't talk for Queensland, but I know there's that massive Adani debate over there, and I, I couldn't understand the difference between our result and Queensland's. Like, Queensland, I think, got the, the worst 2PP result yeah. in the country, but in some respects, very similar issues in terms of struggling economies and them wanting to know where's the next job going to come from mm. and how could I be the mm. one that gets it, or what jobs are going to be there for my kids and how are they going to get into them, what's the pathway to them. I felt we were able to communicate that here in the NT, and for whatever reason, it was never communicated in Queensland. I think it helped that I didn't have you know, the green convoy going up to Queensland. I think that sort of hijacked the debate a bit and we got sort of stuck in this no-man's land around the conversation. That's just from the outside of looking in. Mm. Here in the NT, we were able to put a very clear case to Territorians about here's our plan and here's why we're doing it and at the end of it, there'll be a job for you and a job for your kids. Uh, it's been a while then since we've won uh, a federal election campaign. It's been longer since Carlton won <laughs> a yes. premiership. <laughs> 1995, you're an avid Blue supporter. Um, how are things going there? Any insights into how they can turn that ship around? Uh, well, I'm a big fan of the rebuilding that Sauce has done. And people don't realise this, but Sam Walsh, who went number one draft pick last year to Carlton, is a territory, and I'm claiming him. He spent yeah. three years playing for the Nycliffe Tigers. Right. Uh, he's, a, he's a great – He's a great. well, I shouldn't say a kid. He's a great bloke. He's a great man. Um, his old man, Wayne Walsh, worked up here for the AFL and T for a while, teacher down in Victoria. They're great people. I, I can see a real renaissance building around Patrick Cripps, Sam Walsh. We've got a few little pieces of the puzzle missing um, in, the, in the, that forward line around kicking the goals. But I, I can – That's important. It is important. It is important. You've got to get the scoreboard pressure on. Um, so – I've been saying for a long time, under considerable pressure from mates, you know, Carlton 2020, or next year is 2020, so I'm under a bit of pressure for them to actually do something next year. Yeah, or even maybe make the finals for the first time across. Oh, just win more than four games. <laughs> just don't be in the bottom four, that's what I'm after. Do, do you get a chance to, uh, like, get, get away from the work and, like, I know you like, you like fishing. You played hockey for a while there. Uh, yes. Um, um, so... I do like a fish. Well, this is this is a, you know if you're thinking about where you want to move to, move to Darwin. I'll give you a story why if you like your fishing. So I can get out onto the harbour, catch two or three keepers, get back in, shower, change, and get to work before eight in the morning. That's doable in Darwin. Mm-hmm. Um, I, where else can you do that in this country that you can get out and have a great fish and get get home again? Um, I love my hockey. I love my sport. I've, I've, I, um, I'm now old enough to play in the Masters games in Alice Springs. When I go remote, I pack the sneakers and the whistle. If I can, I help out the local lump to, right. to do the game out there. That's good because um, you know they don't. You know, you think about it, a remote community; they love their footy. Everyone wants to play. Very yeah. few people want to umpire, so I go out and, and give a hand. And yeah, yeah, they treat you with respect when you're out there calling the. They they do actually. I've got to say, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the last games I umpired was out at Gapawiak. It was Carlton versus you know. 
the local Gapawee side, not act- the actual Carlton, but yeah. they had the Carlton jerseys and yeah. that's who they were. Yeah. I was, I've got to say, my biased a few of my <laughs> <laughs> decisions about pushing the back, yeah. Yeah, hands in the back. Um, uh, but, yeah, no, we love our footy in the Territory. I'm a big supporter of having an AFL team in the Territory. We're doing a scoping study around that. I think there is a case to be made that um, – There'd be more people playing AFL or their careers would be longer if there was a territory team. You look at Cyril Rioli retiring early or Liam Jarrah who never got his career going, really. Um, I think we could provide that here in Darwin. I think if you ever want to gauge with Asia in Aussie rules, you should do it from Darwin. Don't try and fly into China. Base it out of of Darwin. We're closer. Um, I think there's some merit to that. Um, And I believe you'd set your side up with a culture from the start that playing games in the NT is about winning games and saving lives. And you'd have a different charter or a different, yeah. different culture from the start about what's the purpose of the team. It's more than about playing footy. It is something that I've noticed in my years of coming up here that uh, it is a, just a generally sports crazy town. You know, Australians can be very parochial, certainly up and down the eastern seaboard between rugby league and, and the AFL. But I always found that when I was in the territory, just people want to watch sport. Yeah. Well, I'd say we're the best place to watch State of Origin. So not Queensland or New South Wales is territory where we're basically 50-50 and people often ask you, you know, what state are you? And mm. you'll say, oh, I'm from there saying, they go, no, 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 you've got to choose <laughs> New South Wales or Queensland. Yeah, you yeah, go, yeah. Oh, I've never been to either of them. No. I'm sorry, but stay of origin night, you've got to have one. You've got to be the cockroach or the cane toad. Um, yeah, we're really into our sport here and I think it helps our players. I know Andy McLeod did everything and we're the first time I watched him play a game of Aussie Rules, I think it was his first or second game. He, he laid this tackle as a classic league tackle. Mm. I thought, yeah, he's, you know, he's got that, that background and I, I love the fact you get to do everything here. Uh, just walking around town uh, the last couple of days since I've been up here, I've noticed that the street art is going to flip from sport to arts and culture yep, now. Yep, go for it. The, uh, the street art, is this a new thing? It's just everywhere. It's just exploded. So we've got a plan for the CBD of Darwin to make it a vibrant CBD, capital of Northern Australia. Part of that is the street art, but we've, um, there's a lot going on. So where do I start? We're the only place in the world, as I found out in my conversation so far, for anyone else that's doing this, that is actively monitoring how heat forms and moves through our CBD. And we're putting in cooling plans as a result of that to make it easier to walk around and enjoy our CBD, mm. I think that's really important, especially with climate change coming along. How do you keep adapting your city to be more livable? Mm. Um, we are making it a more interesting place to come. So events and experiences, I think every CBD is struggling with this. So some of the classic policy solutions are have more people move into the CBD. Uh, for us, we want to make it a more interesting place to come. So the street art, um, we do that every year now. These amazing... Um, you got to come and see it. We've got some extraordinary art around on our on our walls. At the moment, we've got running for free for six months, a Bruce Munro Tropical Light Exhibition. So Bruce is the guy behind the Field of Lights in Uluru that's helped drive significant traffic through to Ayers Rock. This is uh, the first time he's done a citywide um, exhibition. It's going to run for six months. It's free. This is a world-famous artist, um, and there's eight or nine installations there. We had the International Luxor Festival. Uh, we're bringing the CDU the Charles Darwin University campus back into the CBD as part of that city deal as well oh, to really explode the student base. Um, there's, there's a lot that we're doing, but it's all about how do you better connect up your CBD. And I think once we get this this CSIRO Living Lab, that's how the, you know, the heat stuff moving, will be uh, a world's best example of how a city adapts to its climate uh, and particularly of climate change coming, I think we'll be able to be leading edge on that. 
Um, the uh, any anything you want to plug as well, because I'm just going to um, mention to the people that if they ever want to, any Labor people listening that want to ever want to get involved in the campaign, you've got an election next year in uh, in August. August. What's, what date's election? August 22 uh, in 2020. Yeah. Uh, so if you want to get involved in the campaign, this is the one you should jump on. Um, looking forward to next year's campaign. You guys, you're obviously, very focused on that. Um, how are you feeling going into the campaign? Well, I think we one of the great experiences coming and working on a territory campaign. Because uh, of our small seats, you get to have a really personal relationship with the local member that you're working for. You don't always get that on a campaign mm. we're doing. So you get really direct feedback from the local member, from the ministers, uh, with the constituents. You get to be part of that, that whole picture. You get um, incredible opportunity to feed back in and be part of all the decision-making and what's happening. You get to be part of the action. Or if you're part of that one of those remote com- campaigns, you get all that same access to the local member and everything, but you get to see some magic parts of the country that very few people get to see. Um, often you might need a permit to visit them, but if you're part of the campaign team, they'll be done for you and you'll get to visit these communities, talk to people in these remarkable um, ancient locations and you'll get some incredible opportunities that are, are, are life-changing in my opinion. Um, for me, we have exceptionally good, hard-working candidates and uh, I don't know if this is a reasonable way to see every campaign, but you kind of have the central campaign, the policy settings and the things that we're doing as a government, and then supporting that is obviously the local campaign and what you're doing for people on the ground. There's obviously linkages between the two. Um, we've got a lot of people in our team, all the people in our team, who genuinely appreciate that you've got to have strong personal relationships with your constituents, you've got to get out and work them. Um, you know, I know you believe in, in, in door knocking, physically going house to house and saying hello to people and talking to them about what they need. All our members of parliament do that. You know, that's not yeah. always the case, I know. Absolutely. Um, our, our, our people do that. So um, for me, I look at all our members of parliament and think, how's that person going to lose their seat? They've literally visited every house in their electorate three, four, five times during this term. Mm. Um, they've worked hard for the local constituents. They, they know about those people's issues. They've personally looked them in the eye and helped them. Um, and our, our candidates are coming into that culture. So we've, that's a culture we've built up here. Um, it's a strong culture. And you can see all the candidates come in and go, well, that's how I do my job. Mm. I get out. I meet every single person I can. I look them in the eye and say, how can I help you? And how can I make your life better? And what do you want out of your local member and your government? And how can I make that happen for you? Well, Michael, I wish you the best of luck with next year's campaign. You've done a great job thus far as, as the, uh, the chief, as people know you. <laughs> a lovely term of endearment. That doesn't, does that, literally does not sound like it's an arrogant thing at all. It's just people call you the chief. He's the chief. Uh, I wish you the best of luck for next year's campaign. And uh, I recommend anyone who's listening, if you want to get up there, just um, hit up uh, the Territory Labor and um, I'm sure Absolutely. about it, sort you out with a campaign to jump on. Will do. Thank you. Thank you.